Well, good morning again. I tell you, I get to, to singing with all my heart with our worship team, and I forget that I've got to talk now for a little while, so I've got to kind of dial it back a little bit and uh, keep some voice for this. We are about to embark on a new series of studies. I am super excited about this. It's going to last us from now just into September. We are going to be studying the book of Colossians, and of course, the title is Above All. And the the whole point of the book of Colossians is how that Christ is above all things. He is supreme. And so we'll be talking a lot about the supremacy of Christ, who he is, who we are in Christ. It's just a really, really powerful book. So I want to give you a couple words of encouragement at the outset of this thing. First, we have a resource available for you. It is going to cost you just a little bit. On the back of the book, it says 10 bucks, but you can have it for five, okay? We have... Uh, a limited supply here. If we get rid of them, I'll go get another limited supply in Yorktown and have them here for next week. So, uh, But I really want to encourage you to get this for a couple of reasons. One, our small group questions throughout this series are going to be drawn from this book. You can get a copy of those. We'll still print some out so you can have just the small group questions. But this book will give you the opportunity to have a little bit of additional commentary and some study tools. Dr. John MacArthur is the author of this book. And uh, it'll be a really valuable resource for you to add it to your library so you can get those at the welcome desk as you leave. Just five bucks. I'd encourage you to get one. Also, we are coming up on vacation season. So let me please remind you about our website and the access and availability you have to the sermons. Okay? You can, uh, you can get on the website and watch the sermons from Yorktown or listen to the ones that are from here at Gloucester. The audio is always up or the video from Yorktown, and while you're traveling, just take you a little bit of extra time, you can keep right in sync with what the sermons are, okay? So I really want to encourage you to do that throughout this summertime as you're traveling, and, and uh, it'll give you an opportunity to kind of stay in sync. To get underway today, a few weeks ago, Pastor Sean talked about his favorite Christmas movie, which I concur would be Die Hard. Die Hard. Merry Christmas. Now I have a gun, right? I mean, what better fun can you have than that? But anyway, uh, I want to talk about one of my favorite animated movies, and that is Toy Story. You remember Woody, the, uh, the little pull-string cowboy, and uh, he, was, he was the head honcho, right? He was, he was the big dog among all the toys. He was the guy. Everybody looked to him. He was the leader. And then... Um, what was the little guy's name? No, 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 the son, the kiddo. Andy, Andy there you go. Uh, see, you all saw it too. Andy got a new toy for Christmas, and his name was Buzz Lightyear, and he was a space ranger, right? In fact, he really thought he was a space ranger. He had to infinity and beyond and all that, and he was like fully convinced. And of course, Woody, was his position was in jeopardy. So... At one point in time, he grabs Buzz by the helmet, right? And he says, what? You're a toy! There's nothing special was his point. Well, of course, then he and Buzz get out of the house somehow and end up in the clutches of Sid, who is the guy who tears toys apart and makes hybrid weird toys out of them, right? Nasty kid. He's an engineer. There you go. And now it's got to be Woody's job to help Buzz to understand what? 
dude, you're a toy, because there was something unique and special about his role as a toy. Well, I want to kind of start today talking about that. Find in your Bible Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to talk a little bit about our identity. Who are we? What is true of us? As Paul begins this letter to probably several churches meeting in various parts of Colossae, but to the church in Colossae, he wants them to understand some things about the supremacy of Christ, but he, he also begins by giving them some thoughts about who they are. And certainly, in terms of our spiritual identity, it is way more important to understand who we are in Christ than it is for Buzz Lightyear to understand that he's a toy, right? Let me just start in reading. I'm going to read down through these first eight verses that we're going to study today. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This little introduction in these first couple of verses, I think carries with it some, some stuff worth thinking about, okay? So I want to do this under the, the thought of who are we? Because Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That role in the church doesn't exist any longer. There were very specific things that divine, defined an apostle. They had, among other things, to specifically have had a personal interaction with the risen Jesus and uh, in terms of actually seeing him. And so there are no, that's not happening anymore. I'm not going to get into the details about that. But my question is this, who are you in terms of our service? Because I believe we are all called to serve God. I don't think there is anyone, in fact, I know that there is not anyone who is part of the body of Christ, who has come to faith in Jesus, who is in Christ, who is not called to serve. So the question always has to be, so exactly how am I called to serve? So let me go for just a minute to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to read you a verse that I hope will help to spur you on a little bit to thinking about where am I to serve? How exactly does God intend for me to serve? Because I think there's a general theme that all of us fit under, a general category of servant of the Lord. And what we need to do is figure out how has God gifted me and equipped me to do this best. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Everyone who is in Christ is an ambassador for Christ. All of us are ambassadors. All of us represent God to people who are not yet in Christ, pleading with them to be reconciled to God. That's a position that all of us hold. Who are you? You're an ambassador for Christ. How exactly are you going to carry out that ambassadorial role? How exactly are you going to fulfill that purpose that God has given to you? That's going to come in a lot of different ways. It's going to come perhaps in serving in children's ministry or in music ministry or in youth ministry or going to the Peninsula Rescue Mission or getting on a mission trip. That's why we're constantly talking about service. We want everybody to be connected in corporate worship, to be growing in small groups, and to serve in a ministry and a mission. We talk about it all the time because it is so vitally important. And honestly, the easiest parts are getting connected in corporate worship and being in a small group. I mean, you just got to, for most of us, we just got to be there. But it's the service piece, right, that, that requires the sacrifice because it may require me getting there a little early. It may require me preparing something ahead of time to be ready. It may mean I have to go out of my comfort zone to do something that's really just uncomfortable to me but useful to somebody else some other time during the week when we're not holding meetings. I have told people for years when I've held membership classes, I'm not looking for attenders. I'm looking to enlist people in an army. We are here because we are ambassadors for Christ. So I want to tell you, who are you? You are called to serve God. Secondly, Paul says he's writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. It's a specific group of people Certainly, this is beneficial for all of us, but it's good for us to remember he's writing to a particular group of people in a particular city and saying, I'm writing to you guys who are saints and faithful brothers. And he's not saying saints because of their relative morality. Oh, you guys are really the good ones. You guys are saints, right? And they're not from New Orleans. They're just, they are people who have been set apart. They are in Christ because of their willingness to come to God, repent of their sin, trust in Jesus as their only hope of salvation, they, they are now in Christ, and they are, in the eyes of God, set apart for his purposes. They are saints, and they are faithful brothers. I love the picture that the scriptures use when it takes that term brother and applies it to the church. We are not just a social club. We're not just a, a, a service organization. We are family, right? We, we, that means that we care deeply for each other, not just for our common causes, but we're connected to each other. 
Again, it's why we talk about small groups so much. I'm telling you, the times in my life when I have not been connected to a group of people in a small group are the times I have felt very disconnected from my walk with Christ. It's very, you can't walk with Christ effectively as an island. We need to be part of a family. We've got probably 150 people in the building today. Even at that, you're not going to intimately know 150 people, but you'll intimately know 15. You need to be connected to a family, and that's what the church is intended to be. Faithful brothers, trustworthy, intimate in their relationships with each other, willing to sacrifice themselves for others in the family. It's what we are called to be. Who are you? You are called to serve God. You are a saint and a faithful brother. And I got to tell you, I know a lot of you fit into those categories already, and I am super grateful. Secondly, what is true of us? Paul, when he prays, emphasizes his thanksgiving. And I, I decided not to go on at length about the importance of thanksgiving, but I do think it's worth mentioning that when he talks about his prayer, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. When Paul thought about the Colossian Christians, thanksgiving came to mind. There was something about them and their character and how they functioned uh, re with regard to one another and with the world around them that caused thanksgiving to well up in Paul. What was it that caused that? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all saints, and the hope laid up here for you in heaven. So faith, what is true of us? We, we need to have faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says what? For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Faith. It is desperately important. It is not, as, as we, you have often heard Pastor Sean say, faith is not about how much you have or the strength of your faith. The, the quality of your faith is all about who your faith is in. Your faith has got to be in Christ. You need to be trusting in Christ. Hebrews 11 says a couple of interesting things because faith is one of those words that's a little hard to get a handle on, right? So here's how faith is described in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, I'm coming back to the rest here in a minute, but uh, we believe in creation by faith. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that we haven't seen. That's why I didn't say, it's not going to rain till you get home. I sure hope it's not going to rain till you get home so you don't get all wet, but I have no idea. I drove in and out of rain all yesterday, left at noon, got home about 8 o'clock last night or 7.30, and, and in and out of rain all day, and I kept hoping, boy, I sure hope it stops raining. That's not the kind of hope that's being talked about here. Faith is a confidence, a settled confidence, a conviction of things that I just can't even see. I believe that God created the world as we see it, uh, more perfect than I currently see it, but the world that we see was created by God. I believe that by faith. I think there's a lot of evidence to prove it, 
but fundamentally, I believe it because nobody was there to take a video record of it. I believe when God says, I created this, that he created this, right? There are many things in our Christian walk that we are absolutely convinced of. We don't just hope, oh boy, I hope that's true. We're confident of them by faith. And here's the real kicker. Verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's the difficulty. That's the, that's the real uh, stoppage point, right, for a person who wants to say, I'm just going to do the best I can and hope for the best. I'm just going to hope that when I get to heaven, God will say, yeah, relatively, you were pretty good. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because those who would draw near to him have to believe that he exists, that he is, and that he rewards those who seek him. These were people of faith. And I hope that you are today a person of faith. Not just because you have a belief system, but faith in Christ. Second thing that's true is that they were people who had love for all the saints. Be honest now. Don't you wish just a little bit that the word all wasn't in there? Because there are a few of the saints that aren't all that lovable, right? If, <laughs> if you're one of them, I'm sorry to point that out, but you probably don't know it anyway. They had love for all the saints. Why is that important? Jesus made it very clear why it's important in John 13, 35. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how people know. It is the way that people understand that there is something unique about Christianity because we love each other even when we're not being very lovable. Let me read from, from 1 John chapter 3. I mean, you do this with your husband and your, or your wife, right? Probably mostly husbands are the recipients of this, but you love them when they're not very lovable, right? You still love them, right? You're still committed. I'm not talking about all the emotional, ooh, I'm so happy. That's true, too. I hope there's some of that in your marriage. I hope there's a lot of that in your marriage. But, so we understand this in principle right here. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now, I realize that all 150 people here today aren't going to be able to go to the rescue mission, but that verse I read there touches on that, right? If I can look at people who are hurting and it does nothing in me, how is it that I abide in love? 
If I look at people who are struggling and in need, and there's no sense of compassion in me that says, man, I want to do something to help that. I know we can't all show up Saturday morning. But what about the people that are near you? What about the people that are around you in your circle of influence? In what ways are we demonstrating love? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We think we've shown love if we take sticky rolls over to somebody's house or take a meal, and we have, but real love is a willingness to sacrifice. These are people who loved each other. I have a, a good friend in ministry who... Uh, carries on a really a worldwide ministry to the Muslim world was uh, in training to be a Muslim priest as a young man uh, raised born and raised in Afghanistan and uh, taught and trained all his life to hate everybody who wasn't part of his own tribe of people even other Muslims who were part of other tribes he said I was taught I don't love anyone except my own and then he met this Christian missionary who came to him and shared about the love of Christ and who showed love to him in spite of the fact that not only were they not of the same tribe because this man was from America, this man was a Christian and not a Muslim and he loved my friend and it, it transformed his life when he realized I can... I can actually love someone who hates me. How do you do that? Well, you don't do it by just waking up one morning and say, you know what, I just feel particularly loving today. I'm going to go find somebody that hates me and give them a hug. <laughs> you, you do that by leaning into Christ, by growing in your walk with him until, until love begins to just come out of you because it has been birthed in you by Jesus. These are people who were people of faith, people who loved all the saints, and they did that for a particular reason, we are told in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. If you've not thought recently about the hope that is reserved for you if you're a child of God by faith in Christ, I want to give you just a minute to think about it again today. Heaven is real. It's not just something that I, I wonder if it'll be true, and I kind of hope so. It's something that the Bible describes as an absolute certainty. With confidence, I know that the day I leave this earth in death, I wake up in heaven. And I know that because it has been reserved for me. Laid up for me. I have a reservation in heaven. You go on a vacation and you get a reservation at the motel. You show up and they say, oh, Mr. Wilson, so good to see you. We have your room ready. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in him as your only hope of salvation, someday you're going to die and you're going to wake up in heaven and they're going to say, oh, Mr. whatever your name is, Miss so-and-so, we have your room all ready for you. It is reserved for you. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you've trusted Christ, if you are in Christ, you are saved. You have been saved from the penalty of your sin. You are in the process of being freed from the dominion of sin in your life in the process we call sanctification. And you will ultimately be saved when you get to heaven someday. Sin will be a past thought. Can you even imagine that? Can you imagine living a life where you no longer even think about sin, let alone are tempted by sin? You live in perfect holiness, in perfect communion with your heavenly Father, who now, you, you know that there's this constant battle of keeping the, the way clear. And it is, excuse me, it is only through Christ that you have a right relationship to him. It's waiting. It's waiting to be revealed. It is reserved for you. Where did this all come from? Let's keep going back in Colossians 1. Verse 6. Well, the last half of verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Where did this come from? It came from the gospel. The gospel is what lets us know about all of these incredible truths. It lets us know of the simplicity of becoming one who is in Christ by faith. It lets us uh, not only know about the possibility, but gives us the strength to love all the brothers. It lets us know about this incredible hope that is reserved for us someday. What is the gospel? The gospel is the truth, and it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses, describe for us the gospel. Paul talks to the Corinthian believers and reminds them, here's the gospel that I have declared to you. Here's what it says. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's the gospel, if you want it in a nutshell, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He lived the life you could not have lived. He died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sin. He was buried in a tomb, and on the third day, he came back to life again. That's the message of the gospel. If you will acknowledge that you're a sinner and separated from God, that's what you have to respond to to rectify that situation. It's the truth. And it is also the power of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel is power. It is the power of salvation. When we get to next week, we're going to talk about Paul's prayer, and he's going to talk about how the gospel, by its very nature, bears fruit in the lives of believers, and it increases, it expands, it grows, and causes the kingdom of God to expand. I won't get on to next week's sermon quite yet, though thankfully somebody did bring me like three bottles of water this morning, so I don't know why I'm not drinking up. I could go for a while. the gospel. What is it? It's the, it is the truth and the power of God. What does it do? Oh, you know what? I don't have to jump ahead. That's the rest of this passage. What does it do? Verse 6, it has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It bears fruit. First of all, it has come to you and it has come to the whole world. The scope of the gospel is both local and universal. It affects us here at Coastal Community Church in Gloucester. It affects the Middle Peninsula. It affects across the bridge down to Coastal Community Church in Yorktown and all of the peninsula there. It, it is by nature, it is something that grows and expands. It is not just a stagnant system of ethics. If you think that the gospel and Christianity is primarily about rules and laws, John MacArthur says, you misunderstand it. The gospel is living. It bears fruit. There's a story told in Mark chapter 4, it's recorded there, and again in Luke chapter 8 about a, a sower who goes out to sow seed, and the seed falls on four different kinds of soil. And I was thinking just the other day that I have all four of those kinds of soil in my backyard. And I tried to grow grass there again this year. And I have a path where the dogs tend to run. Nothing grows there. Not even weeds grow there, thankfully, but I do have a nice dirt path right along the back part of my yard, just off of the patio. It's not very attractive, but at least I don't have to get rid of the weeds. I have areas where it is packed down and there, there are stones and so on in it, and if I grow seed there, it pops up kind of quickly, but it eventually quits. I have other spaces in my yard where there are weeds that have grown in and the seed, the grass seed, just kind of gets choked out by the weeds. And I have some areas, also thanks to my dogs, perhaps, that are really growing well. <laughs> the gospel, by nature, bears fruit in people's lives. And when it takes root in the soil of a heart that is willing to listen, that has been transformed by the gospel, it bears fruit. It's how it works. If there's no fruit bearing going on, you need to go back and think through, have I really 
truly repented and responded to the gospel because by nature, the gospel bears fruit in the lives of believers. And by nature, the gospel increases. And that, I think, is in the ministry of the church and in the expansion of the kingdom. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it got really busy really fast because the early church grew really quickly. Thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. And after a certain point in time, when a, when a church gets large enough, it becomes difficult to minister to everybody in the church. We find that even at Coastal, and we're not many thousands large, but it's still very difficult. So what did they do? They elected some deacons. They put some people in charge of ministry to people on a more personal level than the apostles could do. And the reaction to that, the scriptures say that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. It is the nature of the gospel that it increases. That's why we send a team to Jordan. That's why in a few weeks we're sending another team to Bolivia. That's why Coastal has planted a campus in Gloucester. It's why we're constantly looking for where can we reach next. And it's why I am convinced we as, as believers in Jesus should be constantly looking at where where will I reach next to be part of the expansion of the kingdom of God for the glory of God? How does it grow? Because the gospel by nature grows. How does that happen? That's back to what I just talked about. I am convinced that it grows because one person talks to another person and that person talks to another person. The gospel grows because people like Epaphras are willing to serve the Lord and go with the gospel. Epaphras is described as a fellow servant, literally a fellow slave. Paul viewed himself as a slave of Jesus. He was not the one who called his own shots. He did not view himself as one who got to do his own thing. He didn't decide where to go. He went where he was told, when he was told, and did what he was told because he was a slave of Jesus Christ. We, we resist that whole concept of somebody else getting to tell us what to do. But I'm telling you, the most effective Christian ministers around are the ones who view themselves as slaves to Jesus. I will do what he says, I will do when, I'll do it when he tells me, and I'll do it where he tells me to do it. And he said, Epaphras is a fellow servant of mine. He is, he is just like me. The likelihood is that Paul never preached in Colossae. He writes to this church, which was planted probably by Epaphras. Probably it is he who went there and took the message of the gospel to these people. He became a, a servant of Christ, a minister of Christ, it says there, right? That's the word deacon. He became someone who would now serve. So he was a fellow slave of Paul's. He was a servant of Jesus. And what he did was take the gospel to Colossae. One of the commentators I read this week put it this way. We too often think that the gospel has moved across the face of the earth through the zeal, passion, and commitment of superstars like Paul. 
not so. The gospel has in large part moved across the globe because faithful servants of the Lord have done their job in being ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You are equally important in the spread of the gospel as the Apostle Paul was. It's what God intends for us. And so I want to kind of begin to draw this to a close and talk a little bit about the importance of evangelism. We're going to do a series this fall. Uh, Our intention is to do a series of studies during our small group season on evangelism. So let me hopefully whet your appetite for those thoughts here this morning. Chapter 10 of Romans, verses 13 and 14 say this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Such an important verse of Scripture. You've got to call on the name of the Lord. You've got to come to God and say, Oh God, I know I'm a sinner and I can't get to heaven on my own. I thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross and pay the penalty for my sin. I believe that he did that in my place and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin based on the person and work of Jesus and to make me your child. Call on the name of the Lord. That's how a person gets saved. But here's the part that is really important that we don't always remember. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? And that's just a word for proclaiming. It doesn't mean me. It doesn't mean Pastor Sean or Pastor Joey or Pastor Andrew or whoever's standing behind some lectern somewhere in a church service. How will people ever hear the gospel if somebody doesn't tell them the gospel? How are they ever going to believe if they never hear? And how are they going to call on him if they haven't believed? If those things don't happen in that kind of succession, if we don't start with making sure we're telling them, proclaiming the gospel, they're never going to hear it, they're never going to believe, they're never going to call on Christ. It is up to us. It is not up to us to make sure they get in front of a preacher. It is up to us to be the preacher. So let me give you a couple thoughts to take with you as we wrap it up. Where are you called to serve? I hope, I really do hope, that I'm getting almost to the point of annoying in reminding you that we need you to serve the Lord at Coastal Community Church Gloucester. We have missions like the Peninsula Rescue Mission that we talked about earlier. We have other missions that are rather local in their nature. We want to get you involved in serving the Lord by going on a mission trip like our team in Jordan and others that are happening But we need you to serve here, too. We need people to serve in children's ministry. We need people to help make coffee, to welcome people and greet them as they come in in the mornings. We need people to collect the offering every time I remember to take it. (laughs) We need people to serve and lead us in worship so that our, our hearts are already in a flow of worshiping God when we come to the time where we want to sit now and listen to what he says. We need people in all different parts of our ministry. We need people to serve. Those little cards are still out here on the welcome desk. I saw some there this morning. Check it off there. We're going to need people to serve in youth ministry. 
We need you. We need you to serve. Where are you called to serve? Secondly, do you have a growing faith and a deepening love? If your faith is genuine, it will grow. If you will spend time in the scriptures, if you will spend time in personal, private worship and in corporate worship, and if you'll get connected with a small group of people who can help to challenge you and encourage you in your walk with God, if you will do those things, you will grow. And you will deepen your love for those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and for those who are needy around us. Thirdly, do you have the hope of heaven found in the gospel? I've shared the gospel probably two, three, four times during this sermon. If you don't know for sure that you are on your way to heaven, that your sins are forgiven, talk to me, catch Joel, catch one of these worship team members afterward, get a hold of Julie, let us sit down with you and show you from the scriptures how you can know your sins are forgiven, you're bound for heaven. Is the gospel bearing fruit in your life? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, self-control, that list from Galatians, those things are natural. You don't, you don't need to. If you're growing in your walk with Christ, those things aren't a list of things that you work at, that you try and pursue, that you, that you have to say, oh, i got to work on that one today. They are fruit. It grows. As you nourish the root, the fruit grows. Is, is the gospel bearing fruit in your life? I hope it is. There's much to do, and there's great joy in knowing that we get to be part of the process of being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I hope you're, I hope you're a little excited about that. I hope you're going to leave here today thinking, man, I'm, I just got a promotion this week. I'm an ambassador this week. It's good news, right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your kindness to us. I'm really grateful for your, your blessings and the privilege of being ambassadors. And I I ask that you would challenge our hearts through the hearing of the word this morning. Don't let us leave here different than when we came in. I pray in Jesus' name.